welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Good morning, everyone. This morning, um, we'll be reading Ezra, chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. The People's Confession of Sin. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelis, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekinah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leaders, leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Elishib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem and on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and by and because of the rain. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honour the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The assembly, the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our town who has married foreign women come at a set time along with the elders and the judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter has been turned from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did what was proposed. Ezra, the prince, selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all them... and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all men who had married foreign women.
Morning, church. Who's for the beach later on? What a cracker of a day. Who's in for a good storm? I love a good storm. Who likes sitting on the beach, not like undercover watching a storm roll in? Yeah, you see, so I wasn't being so silly about the beach, was I? Hey, my name's Dave Kilpatrick. I serve as the Director of Ministries here across Kerry. And it's really great to be uh, with you this morning. We are looking at the book of Ezra. This is the second part of a four-part series looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. And as Mark said last week, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written as one book, one section of the story of the Israelite people. But as the, uh, the Bible has evolved and been edited, it's been split into two books. Before we spend some time looking at Ezra, I wanted to just go back a little bit, about 900 years. And in about five minutes, we're going to run through sort of the history of the Israelites really, really quickly. This is a terrifying thing to do for me because John Ollie's in the congregation and he's a, an Old Testament scholar. He writes books about this stuff. And some of the stuff I'm talking about is about kings, which he has written leading books on. So, John, I apologise. About plus or minus a couple of hundred years around about 1,450 years before Christ, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were in bondage in Egypt. They'd come to Egypt to escape a famine. They'd flourished there for a long period of time, but they got so powerful, as Mark said last week, they got so powerful that the Egyptians had effectively enslaved them and they were in bondage and hardship. And God heard their cry and we read in the story of the Exodus, the story of God calling a man called Moses to lead his people out of exile. And God through his, his hand delivered his people. They went through the Red Sea and God took them to a place called Mount Sinai. And in Mount Sinai, God said to Moses and to the people, I have rescued you out of Egypt. I will be your God and you will be my people. And God gave them the Ten Commandments. God gave them the law through which they were to live and be known as the people of God. And from there, they continued on and God led them and fed them in the desert. He guided them. He gave them instructions to build a tabernacle and a, an ark of the covenant where the Ten Commandments were stored. And that was where God would dwell amongst his people. And then they, they wandered through the desert. They got to the Jordan River. And this was the promised land. God had said to them, I will take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And this was it. They were right on the edge of the ability to go in. And they sent 12 spies into the land. And the spies went in and the spies came out. And 10 of the spies said, oh, no, it's terrible. Yes, it's good land, but they're very big and they'll crush us and it's scary. And we can't go in. And two spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, they're big, but our God is bigger. He will deliver us, them, into our hands. We can take this because of what God has done. And the people voted with the numbers and said, oh, no, it's too scary. We can't do it. So God, there's, there's other stuff in there. Read this through the story of Exodus. And, um, but God said, was frustrated with them and said, I'm not going to allow you to go in. He kept them another 40 years wandering through the wilderness because they did not believe that God could give them the land that he had promised to them. 
So they get back to the Jordan about 40 years later. Moses dies. Joshua is called by God to lead the people. God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous for I am with you. Joshua takes the people across. They win lots of battles. They make some mistakes. They live for a while with God. They went away from God. Cut a long story short. There's this story of the Israelites taking this land, getting settling in this land. And after a while, they asked for a king. So God gave them King Saul. He didn't really want to give them a king. He said, the king's not going to do you any good. So he gave them King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon. You know these names probably. (coughs) The highlight, the high point probably of this period is King David. A great king, a king after God's own heart. And then we have King Solomon. And with King Solomon, King Solomon was meant to be the wisest man who ever lived. And... uh, and that's because God gifted him in wisdom. But he perhaps wasn't so wise. See, things started to go downhill with Solomon. And we are going to get to Ezra. Hang with me. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, we read about Solomon. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign wives, uh, women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and the Hittites. They were from nations which the Lord had told the Israelites You must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. Seven, just, man, that's just terrifying. And three, I mean, can you imagine trying to win an argument with 700 wives and 300 concubines? I thought this guy was smart. As Solomon grew old, uh, 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. So God had given them a command. Don't intermarry because they will lead you astray. Man, Solomon did it in a big way. And he was led astray. And after that, things pretty much went down south reasonably quickly. After Solomon reign the kingdom was split it was split into two there was a northern kingdom that continued to be called Israel and there was a southern kingdom that was called Judah and Jerusalem the city of David the the city that David built and the temple of the law that Solomon had built was in the nation of Judah in the south and the kingdom of Israel the northern kingdom almost all of the kings I think all of the kings that Israel had were bad the scriptures say they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and God would send prophets saying repent come back to me turn away from these gods turn away from your evil ways but they did not listen and it was only about 200 years after the end of the reign of Solomon that the northern kingdom was completely wiped out and the people were scattered the southern kingdom the kingdom of Judah fared a little bit better they had some good kings they had some kings that, that followed the ways of the Lord, that trusted in God, that didn't worship other gods and led their people well. But the majority of the kings of Judah were also bad. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God sent prophets to them to say, repent, turn away. 
And eventually, again, the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed in about 587 years before Christ. It had been conquered before that, a few years before that, by the Babylonians. But in 589 or thereabouts, the Babylonians came and laid siege to the city. And in about 587 years before Christ, the walls were destroyed, the temple was destroyed and birth and the city was leveled. And the majority of the rest of the Israelite people were taken into captivity in Babylon. So at this point, the story is pretty bleak. We've got, you know, 900 years earlier, plus or minus a couple of hundred years, God leads his people out of Egypt. He calls them by name. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. You are to be a light to the nations around you and this is how you shall live. And now... The whole nation has been scattered. The temple of God has been destroyed. The city of Jerusalem has been leveled. And this is where we come into Ezra. Ezra, at this point in the book of Ezra, we're in chapter 7. We're about to start chapter 7. The book's called Ezra, but the first chapters 1 to 6 don't have anything to do with Ezra at all. They start with King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus was the king of Persia. He actually defeated the Babylonians and then he held Babylon under his reign. And in in Ezra chapter 1, we heard the story last week, God speaks and leads Cyrus to set the exiles free to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And Cyrus, in his own letter of authority to Zerubbabel, says the, the God of heaven has instructed me to allow them to go and to build his temple. And he provides silver and gold and the the articles from the temple to go. Now, just in case you were wondering, was this really the God of heaven that had done this? About 150, maybe 200 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke of God causing King Cyrus to rebuild his city. This is in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, and Isaiah 45, verses 1 to 15. If you read those sections, it's amazing to see the correlation between what Isaiah spoke and what actually happened. So God, over 150 years earlier, had been saying, and this is before Jerusalem was destroyed, had been saying, I will cause my servant Cyrus to build my city. So Cyrus commissions Zerubbabel, they go and they start to build the temple. This is the subject of Mark's sermon last week. You'll remember God, Mark made this statement that God's vision is resourced by God's provision. But the temple actually took about 20 years to rebuild. There was opposition around the place and people in the neighbouring regions were writing to the king saying you don't want these people to rebuild this temple they're a troublesome people you go through history you'll see all they do is create problems they will rebel and and the king put a stop to it for a little while and then after a little while again it was started again people intervened the temple building was started and the temple was commissioned in 536 and it wasn't completed until 516 remember the dates are going backwards moving back towards Christ And Ezra steps into the picture in about 458 BC. 
That's 80 years after Cyrus has sent the exiles to Jerusalem on the first occasion and 60 years after the building of the temple. So who was this, who was this King Cyrus guy? So in the beginning of chapter 7, it says, After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, he was a successor, or he was the fourth successor from King Cyrus. Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilakai, the son of the son of the son of the son of the son of. I'll pretend I'm doing that to save time, but some of the names are unpronounceable. The son of Abishu, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra was a descendant of Aaron, who was Moses' brother, the chief priest, the first chief priest of the Israelites. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So it's being made really clear, this was a teacher of the law. This was the law that God had given to Moses. And this Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron. This is a significant moment where a teacher is going back to the people of Israel in uh, Jerusalem to teach the law. And it says, the king had granted him everything he asked for because the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, once again, as with um, King Cyrus, King Artaxerxes writes a letter of authority to Ezra as he goes and he provides him silver and gold not only from the king but also what he could gather from the provinces and he writes him a letter of authority for him to go and about 2,000 people went out with Ezra to go to Jerusalem. Now how far do you reckon it was from Babylon to Jerusalem? Just take a wild guess. Hundred? Do we have an advance on a hundred? Sorry, a thousand? Close. It was it was more than a thousand. It was nine hundred miles, fourteen hundred and fifty kilometers. This track took five months. They are loaded with gold and silver. There's about two thousand of them. This would have been a big deal. These two thousand people loaded with treasure going out, and they didn't take any soldiers or guards. I reckon this is really cute because. Ezra said, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us on the road because we told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him and great is his anger against all who forsake him. So they've got all this gold, they've got all this silver, they've got 2,000 people, they've got 900 miles to travel. It took them about five months. You can imagine Ezra thinking, oh... I can't very well ask for soldiers now. God protects us, but can you protect us a little bit? So Ezra is ashamed. He said, no, I cannot do that. So before they left, they fasted, they prayed, and they entrusted themselves to God to take them on this journey. And they got there without incident. They got there with all the gold and the silver that was for the purposes of buying sacrifices and for the altar. So chapter 8 in Ezra, that was chapter 7. Chapter 8 in Ezra talks about um, all of the people that went and a, a little bit about the journey, but not a lot. And then we have this really uplifting passage that Bree read to us from chapter 10. What a lovely thing to be reading on a nice wet Sunday morning. And we open in chapter 10 with 
Ezra lamenting and crying and praying and grieving. What's going on? Well, remarkably, the backstory of chapter 10 can be found in chapter 9. The Bible's funny like that. So in chapter 9, Ezra has arrived with his people with the gold, with the silver. They've done the sacrifices. They've no doubt given the letter of authority to the regional authorities. Uh, Ezra perhaps has started the teaching. But they know that he's come with the authority of King Artaxerxes and they know that he's probably a descendant of Aaron and they know he is a diligent teacher of the law. In chapter 9 it says, After all these things are done, the leaders of the people in and around Jerusalem came to Ezra and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples. With their detestable practices and those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and the Amorites, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And then in chapter 9 at verse 3, we hear Ezra speaking in the first person. He's writing this or at least recording this in his own words. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and my cloak. I pulled hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from myself for basement. That's not from the basement, that's from his lying on the ground, the tearing of his clothes, the reaction that he had with my tunic and cloak torn. And I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and I prayed. Have a look at Ezra chapter 9 when you get home and read the prayer that Ezra prayed, a pair of grief, a pair of repentance. Now, at first instance, this might seem a bit extreme. I mean, Ezra's not done anything wrong. He's travelled 900 miles with gifts from the king Artaxerxes and he turns up to this rabble of the exiles living in and around Jerusalem and he finds that they've done the wrong thing. And so he starts pulling out his hair and his beard and tearing his clothes and lying on the ground, appalled. It seems a bit excessive, really, doesn't it? But if we think about the history, see, Ezra was a person who knew the law. He knew the history of the Israelites. He would have known how God had rescued these people out of Egypt that God had created them a nation, that God had set them apart, that God had given them the law on Mount Sinai, that God had led them through and delivered them into the promised land. He would have known the command not to intermarry because it would lead them astray to other gods. He would have known the story of Solomon 
and his 700 royal wives and 300 concubines. He would have known how that had led his heart astray. He would have known the history of the people of Israel and Judah who had turned away from their God. He would have known that the exile that they had been experiencing in Babylon was because of the people's rebellion against God. And he now knew that God had moved to remove the remnant from Babylon and reestablish them in the land. He had seen the hand of God work. He knew it had worked through Cyrus. He would have known and seen it work through King Artaxerxes. And he comes back 80 years after the remnant have settled back in Jerusalem and he sees we're doing it all over again. We're doing it again. A man who fears God, who loves God, who understands the history of his people, who has come to teach the Torah, the law of God, you can understand him saying, no, God has just relented and rescued us. And we've already turned our back on him. So here we come to Ezra in chapter 10. And this is where the reading started. And Ezra has been praying and the people have been being convicted and they've said, this is, this is not good. We should take action. We have not been faithful. Let's separate ourselves from these wives, these foreign wives. And they, they suggest, let's, let's make a decree that everyone in Judah, everyone, all of the exiles that are returned needs to come within three days to the temple. And if you didn't come within those three days, you would forfeit your land and you would forfeit your property and you would be expelled from the community of the exiles, the remnant that had returned. And then we pick it up in Ezra chapter 10, verses 9 to 17. Within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Don't you love that in the scriptures? It's this momentously convicting period and people are distressed because of the occasion and it's wet. I mean, this is the wet season. It's cold, it's wet, it's miserable. You've got all these people gathered and they were distressed because of the rain. What a great day to be preaching this. Just think about doing this, but outside. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honour the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. And the whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But come on, it's wet. You've got to love it when you're feeling convicted and someone comes in with the practicality, don't you? This is awesome. We should do this. Yeah, but Dave, you know, think about it. But there are many people here and it's rainy season. We can't stand outside. Beside, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Do you love how God just mixes up the practicalities of the situation and the conviction of the people? They are complaining about the weather, but they're not devaluing 
what they've done. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. And it goes on in 16, so the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to investigate the cases and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. This took them three months. So they were complaining about the rain, but they, they went and did this investigation and this inquiry and they met with all the people and it took them three months. And they sent the foreign wives away and their children away. I mean, we're reading this story almost two and a half thousand years later. An unrecognisable context. How do we learn from this? What has this got to say to Australians living in relative comfort with a roof over our heads while it's raining in 2018? I mean, at one level, this seems a bit harsh. No doubt these women were innocent. They got married in good faith and now they're being sent away. Are we to take from this that we should send our foreign wives away? By the way, it's a complete coincidence that I'm preaching this when a bunch of the men are away. No, that's not the point of the story. In the context of this story, we are all foreigners to the covenant of Moses. This was to the the Israelite people the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We'd all be foreigners to that covenant. And we read in Micah chapter 2 that God hates divorce. This this was not a a, a great thing. In some respects, the Israelites were were dealing with the the lesser of two evils. They'd been convicted that, that they had sinned, but there's still heartache and pain in what has been done. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of God taking his people out of exile. If you like, it's the second of those stories. The first was the story of Moses, of his people being in bondage in Egypt. And God initiating their exodus, their escape from bondage through Moses and calling them to be a people. And they were called to be a people as a light to the nations, to demonstrate what it was for a people to be in covenantal relationship with God so that the nations could see and be drawn to God. Remember, God has always loved the world. If you like, Ezra and Nehemiah is like a second exodus. God has exiled his people because of their disobedience. They just will not listen. And so he allows the king of Babylon to rise up. He wipes them out. He takes them into captivity. And they're in captivity for about 70 years. 
And then God acts divinely as was prophesied by Isaiah and rises up King Cyrus, the Persian king, and allows a remnant to return and rebuild the temple, re-establishing his people in their land with the temple. And then he brings Ezra in to teach them the law. But there's a third exodus. This is the greatest exodus. This is the exodus where it wasn't Egypt that was defeated. It was sin and death that was defeated. This is the exodus that started on Easter Friday and burst into vibrant reality on Easter Sunday when the Son of God rose from the dead. This is the exodus of which you and I are a part. This is an exodus through which God is reconciling the whole world to himself. And this is an exodus to form a people that are for the whole world. God doesn't call us, the church, just for our benefit. He calls the church together for the benefit of the world. We are the people of this exodus. We have been rescued out of bondage. We have been set free from the consequences of sin and death. We have been brought into relationship with God. In the letters from John, John, the apostle writes, what great love has been lavished on us that we should be called children of God. The Israelites were called children of God. The family of God has expanded to be all of the followers of Jesus. But how different are we really from the people in Ezra's day? See, we now have the Holy Spirit. When we come to Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit, his deposit of life in us that communicates and speaks. The Apostle Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit guides us, it leads us into all truth. It brings the Scriptures alive and speaks to us. How often have we sensed God's prompting? How often have we heard that still small voice? calling us, saying you need to forgive that person. You need to stop doing that. You need to reach out to that person. You need to start tithing. You need to be more generous. You need to stop gossiping. You're not trusting me. How often in a sermon or when we're reading the scriptures or we're just listening to God, have we heard that still small voice prompting, directing us and we've ignored it. We've pushed it aside. We've not really taken heed. See, Ezra 
saw the rebellion of his people and he pulled out his beard and his hair and he was appalled because he understood the God who had spoken. He understood that that God had rescued his people from Egypt, had rescued his people from Israel and had made some solemn commands. I think our trouble sometimes is that it is, it is a still small voice. And we forget that that still small voice is the voice of the one who spoke creation into being. That still small voice is the voice of the one who called his people out of bondage in Egypt that separated the Red Sea. That still small voice is the voice of the one who sent his son to die, to set the captives free. It's the same God that Ezra was appalled at their disobedience for. Perhaps we don't need to be pulling out our hair or our beards. But I think we can take heed of Ezra's heart and remember the one who speaks. But is God a tyrant? Is God this angry God that wants to come out and punish? They talked in the, the Israelites talked about moving God's fierce anger against us. But if we go back to the story and think about it carefully, we see a different picture. See, Ezra turned up at Jerusalem 900 miles away and was just devastated and appalled by what he discovered, the sin of the Israelites. But you see, God wasn't surprised. God already knew. It was an act of grace sending Ezra to his people to teach them again the law, to call them back to himself. God didn't need to send Ezra to discover what they were doing. He knew God sent Ezra to call his people back to himself. As an act of grace. And so why did he do that? See, God wasn't wanting to call his people back to himself because God needed them. God's okay. He doesn't need us, but he knows that we need him. He knows that we were created for intimate, personal relationship as communities with God. And he knows our heart. And he knew that if the Israelites were going to intermarry with the people who served foreign gods, they were going to be led astray. And he knew if they were led astray, they'd be in bondage. And not only that, but they would lose their distinctiveness and they would fail to be a lighthouse to the rest of the world that he loved. See, God's sending of Ezra to instruct the people was an act of grace to his people and to the world. Ezra knew the God he served. He knew he was a faithful God. He knew he was a good God. But Ezra didn't know just how good this God was. 
Ezra couldn't have comprehended the lengths that this God would go to to redeem and restore all the world. Ezra couldn't have comprehended that God would actually send his own son to die at our hands, to conquer sin and death, to create a way where we could be removed from exile and participate in the family of God. Ezra didn't know that. But we know that. We know that. We know the extraordinary price our freedom cost. Some people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was the grumpy one and Jesus came along and made peace and he's now, now we're in the, it's the same God. His heart reflected always in love. But it's a God not to be trifled with. My kids know I love them. They don't know how much I love them. They won't know that until they're a dad or a mum. But they know I love them. We don't know how much God loves us either, by the way. And they don't always do what I say, but they know enough not to be dismissive of me. They know enough not just to ignore what I say. Because I will come down on them if they do that. And not because I'm grumpy, but because I love them too much to let them go astray. I would rather inflict consequences upon them when they are not listening to me than have them just wander and hurt themselves. I'm not doing that for my benefit. It would be much easier just to let them do what they want for Pete's sake. But I go through the journey, we go through the journey of parents, of disciplining and shaping our kids despite the pain and the frustration of it because we love them more than anything else on earth and we do not want them to go astray. Our heart for our kids in that way is just a snapshot of the unfathomable heart of God that wants people free, that wants people in relationship with him, that wants the world set free. The still small voice is the voice of that God who speaks with purpose, who speaks with love, who speaks sometimes difficult things into our hearts. He challenges us. We ought not ignore it. We ought not shove it aside. This is God. It is a God of love and compassion. It is a God who calls us into freedom and it is a God who has set us at a, as a task to participate with his reconciling work for the whole world. If we are not obedient, not only does it cost us, it costs the world.
We're going to take a moment. And I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit that if God has been stirring something in us, if God has been prompting us about something, if God has wanted to but we've not been listening, just to remind us. We don't want to be a people that do not listen. Let's be reminded by the reaction of Ezra that this still small voice belongs to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of all creation, the God who died. And sometimes what he speaks about might be hard, but it is to set his people free. When he speaks as an act of grace for you and me and for his family and a community and for the whole world, we may not understand the significance of what he's saying, but will we be obedient? So let's take a moment and just allow the Holy Spirit to prompt you bring to your mind to stir you about what perhaps he has been saying. Lord Jesus, Lord, I know in my own life how easy it is to just try and put to the back your still small voice. Lord, I'm really sorry. Lord, we are sorry. That is not the people we want to be. And Lord, you know that that is who we are. But you, you call us, Lord. Holy Spirit, forgive us for not listening. But in this moment, Lord, by your gracious mercy, would you just remind us of the things that you have been trying to tell us, the places to which you've been calling us, the things that you're putting your finger on. pray in your mercy and grace, Lord Jesus, that you would speak and lead. there have been things that God has been reminding you of. Let's take a note from the exiles. They didn't say it was raining and therefore it's too hard. They said it's raining and it's difficult, but we are going to set about a process where we can intentionally address that which God has convicted us of. Can I encourage you today, friends, if God has laid something on your heart, if he's brought something to mind that you think, yeah, I know that's him. Take action. Write it down. Make a note of it. Talk to someone about it. Take steps to be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God.
because he wants to set you free. And he wants to set your neighbours free. And he wants to set your work people free. And he wants to set the world free. He speaks with love and purpose and intent. Friends, our God is so good. We often speak about his love and his joy. This is a heavier message because we can forget who it is who speaks. Let's not be that community. Let's be attentive to the voice of God and step out and follow wherever He leads. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You're a God who speaks. Lord, You spoke through the prophets and You speak through the Scriptures and Lord, You have given us Your Holy Spirit and You speak to us in quiet, gentle ways. Lord, we want to be obedient to your call, to your direction, to your leading. Do not stop speaking, Lord Jesus. We worship you for you are God of heaven and earth. And Lord Jesus, we pray that in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in this church and in this community, your will would be done. Your kingdom would come and your name would be glorified in all the earth. Amen.